0: You know I can tell you as a former player and a coach m- most of my philosophy is about learn from what was and use it to what is and, and not to the extent where there's resentment or anger or frustration that you didn't do something and I bet most of the greats are even though they're real competitive when they get pragmatic they go yeah I could have would have but also here was a couple majors where I got through and won the title and I probably shouldn't have
1: john wertheim here it is this week's sports illustrated slash tennis channel tennis podcast our guest paul anacone in the flesh in studio paul was in town for the easter holiday visiting some family and he came down to sports illustrated to hang out a bit with uh, our producer jamie lasanti and me we also had uh, we just missed chris russo big tennis fan we'll give a shout out to uh, the mad dog a great supporter of tennis uh He was going to come by as well, but we could not coordinate. Anyway, Paul is here, and uh, we have a great conversation, talk a lot about Roger Federer, as we always do. Paul, of course, after his pro career, a career that saw him get to number 12 in the world, I'll have you know. After his playing career, Paul has become uh, an esteemed coach, worked with Pete Sampras, and worked with Roger Federer. He is now, among other things, an esteemed uh, tennis channel colleague and commentator. We talk about Roger Federer, we talk about tennis these days in general. Paul's prediction that Rafa Nadal will dominate the clay season, meaning that Federer Nadal will go to Wimbledon having one each of them one major. That's not something a lot of us saw coming into the year. Uh, we talk a bit about uh, Paul's forthcoming book as well. Good conversation with a good guy um, and he's right here. So why don't we stop babbling and make this less of a monologue and more of a dialogue. I think you're our first in-studio guest since like Carillo came to the old building and uh, sat amid the dented beer cans. I'm so excited.
0: So I feel like I'm sitting on a throne now. I'm breaking Jamie, new ground. You
1: get uh, to be our star producer.
0: Exactly. Now I know who holds everything together with the glue.
1: You know Alison Rosen from Adam Carolla's podcast? Jamie's going to become a star <laughs> from uh, from producing these tennis podcasts. As she should. So it is uh, April. We're going to time stamp this. What's today? 18th. 18th April 18th. We are a little more than 100 days into the season. If I had told you on New Year's Eve that Roger Federer would win a major and then back that up with the, what do we call it, the sunshine double? Yeah, why not? With Indian Wells-Miami, you say what? Sounds about right? Possible, highly improbable. And I, I I'm a huge
0: believer that the greats can always play great, The challenge is for them to do it for prolonged periods of time. So in the first quarter of the year, to win three out of the four events that he played is pretty ridiculous, especially when you look at all the wins that he's already accumulated. So he's sustained an incredibly high level, and at 35 years
1: of age, that is uh, pretty remarkable. So we uh, had—I'm trying to remember who he had. I think it was Robbie Koning we were talking about, the the whys, the hows and the whys. And the obvious is— the backhand and he's, he's taking his rips and none of this stay in the rally with the slice, but really using the backhand as a weapon. Um, Robbie had an interesting point too. He said that Roger really benefits from embracing the grind. He doesn't mind the travel. He has the means to bring his family with him and he doesn't get worn out by the day in the day out, the security lines, the, you know, I don't, not too many guys at the top are going to rental car counters, but that, that equivalent, (laughs) um, Take take both of those. I mean, you're you're seeing the backhand as a weapon, obviously. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing
0: for all the greats as they go through their evolution is how do you feel mentally? Because at that stage, I really... Sure, you can talk about the body having miles on it and all these other things, but if there's not a a very clear injury, then the body's really driven by how the mind feels. And, And I... Vividly remember Pete Sampras at the end of his career, and we went through this. We had numerous conversations. Pete was tired of it all. He was tired. He was not. He not, not a I I mean, it's it's a mental
1: fatigue. Yeah, and he, a was a he was a mental. He was. Yeah,
0: he was tired of being a celebrity. He was tired of flying, all due respect, to play in San Jose and having to go to Vienna in the fall. And so that was very difficult for him. But, Robbie, and your comment right there hit the nail on the head. Roger loves his life. He loves this journey. And he's got his family with him. He's got his four kids with him. They go to the zoo. They see arts. They go out and do family things. And he gets to play tennis. And That is the driver. That's the thing that keeps the fuel tank full because now his body's healed from some injuries that have been lingering, but the mind is fresh because he's been away for a long time. So for me, that's what's allowed him to go out and hit over his backhand relentlessly and have fun and a little taste of mortality for the second half of last year. Refresh the mind, refresh the body, and now get back and do what you love.
1: Athletes hate this question. But it's—I I always wonder about this. Is there any part of him that's saying, "This is great. This is fantastic." But God damn it, what happened in those those last five years? Why wasn't I doing this then? If you're—if you're—and you know, this goes not just Roger. I mean, if, you know, if we're saying with, does Joe Conta not say, "Boy, I wish I'd put things together three, four years ago and wasn't playing sub 100 tennis for the first three years of my career." Is Roger at all just bittersweet at all?
0: Well, the, specifically the two greats that I've been with, Pete Sampras and Federer have, in a very different, different kinds of personalities, have an incredible talent to actually detach from what has happened and not let that bother what can happen. And what I mean by that is, you know, after they lose, it's done. There's an evaluation and you move on. There isn't second guessing. There isn't coulda, shoulda, woulda. It's you make your notes and you move on. And and that Roger does perhaps better than anyone I've ever seen because he remains relentlessly optimistic about what may occur and doesn't get caught up in what did occur and the shortcomings of that. And if you asked him and you looked at his record, he would probably say, yeah, I probably could have done a little better here or there. I could have done this or that. But he doesn't waste energy on it. And I think that that allows the player to go on the court with a free mind and kind of a relentless pool of optimism because you're not second-guessing yourself. You're looking forward to a process that actually is going to be um, a very optimistic one.
1: So what, what about the other? What about the flip side? Were you ever with him when he really savored a victory? Like the, the flip side of beating yourself up after a defeat, was there ever one win where he, he sort of— took took that extra moment to really really savor the occasion. Sure,
0: 2012 when he won Wimbledon. You know, when he beat Andy Murray in the finals of Wimbledon, that was pretty special. He hadn't won a major since 2008, Australian. maybe
1: or 2009. Uh, Australian Open 2010 was the previous. Was it? One.
0: Oh, 10, 10, 10, 10 That's right. Yeah, but you know, so, it's almost two and a half so, years. Yeah, so it was, yes, that's 2010. that's right. So so, I guess the the point is that that to him was pretty special because that's the pinnacle of our sport really at Wimbledon right. um and to go back there he'd had so much success and to beat Andy in that final when you know for already a number of years we've been saying is this it can he ever do it again i think that was pretty special and then this year at australia after he won the australian open i got literally 3 minutes with him afterwards he was pretty elated about that and that that might have been the only time i've kind of seen him a little bit shocked like did like wow i really did that because i think i think he really feels like he can win anything but going into australia not having played for 6 months and coming out of that you know beating four top 10 guys and rafa in the finals after being down 3-1 in the fifth not sure even he felt
1: like he was capable of that how much do you think it means to him to win a mental battle against Nadal. I mean, we, you know, it, it's great message board fodder. It's, it's great sort of tennis geekdom. But to Roger Federer, how much do you think winning a five-setter down or break against a guy who's gotten the better of you for your career, how much of a difference do you think that makes? Oh,
0: I think it's huge. And, look, I lived it um, for three and a half years trying to help solve the Rafa problem. <laughs> and the Rafa mm-hmm. problem is he's great, and he's a tremendous competitor with a lot of margin on his ground stroke. So when the pressure comes, his margin creates safety and his athleticism allows him to stay in points longer, which tends to create, very simplistically, more errors from Federer's style of game. So when Roger all of a sudden at 3-1 in the fifth is able to play 20 minutes of spectacular tennis and basically hit Rafa off the court, that is an awakening. And I think we've seen a little bit of the trickle-down effect in Indian
1: Wells and in Miami. That Roger now feels like, oh, I can do this. I see. I mean, whatever. This is what separates elite practitioners from people like me. But there's no. I keep getting back to this. There's there's nothing in the back of his thinking saying like, God damn it, where was that at the 2009 Australian Open final? Where was that backhand in all those French Open matches? There there's no sense of bittersweet.
0: Well, I think you're talking about a very human reaction, which is an emotional reaction to what had happened. And I think, you know, I can tell you as a former player and a coach, most of my philosophy is about learn from what was and use it to what is, and and not to the extent where where there is um, resentment or anger or frustration that you didn't do something. Because Roger, probably knowing him, he's very pragmatic. And I bet most of the greats are even though they're real competitive, when they get pragmatic, they go, yeah, I could have, would have. But also, here was a couple majors where I got through and won the title, and I probably shouldn't have. So I think that there is a little bit of a give and take in that
1: scenario. One thing that strikes me about Trump, we're not going to – we won't get very political here. Uh, <laughs> we'll save that for Martin and Mary. But one thing that strikes me about Trump, I've never met a successful person who is seems to be as bitter as he is. I mean, there's a lot of resentment and grudges and score settling, and even his Twitter feed is filled with, you know, who's a fraud and who's a disgrace. Um, The top players, Federer comes immediately to mind, but I don't think it's limited to him, seem relentlessly almost positive. How much of that is A, for show, and B, how much of that is learned, and how much of that is just organic to their personality?
0: I think mostly in individual sports where you are stripped bare of everything. It's just you. You can't fall back on your team. Yeah, no. Exactly. And and everything is magnified. And so I think a very small— with the guys that are great right now, I think it's an extremely small part of that is for show. I think most of them organically know. Doesn't matter. I've got to take care of my stuff, so I don't. I can't worry about Rafa or Novak or Roger. If I'm Andy Murray, I need to get, you know, more solid behind my second serve. I have to make sure I'm consistently aggressive. And so they actually focus on their own themes and their own philosophies and strategies. It is interesting. You mentioned Trump, and and he is a. Ve- you know, to me, that part that part of looking, I don't want to get political either, but that part of him taking Donald Trump out of it. Anyone that's like that, for me, sets off warning signs as in the category of being presidential, because you need to be able to evaluate and process pragmatically and right. go through things and weigh stuff instead of someone stepped on my foot. So turn around and hit him with a sledgehammer. You know, it, exactly. It's, no, no, you know, no, it's, it's and not and so a, so that not a leadership that, quality. That, no, that's startling to me, and and it makes me a little a little concerned. And most great players are like that. Even there's a couple players that you can look at sports wise that had a little bit of that. Maybe Michael Jordan a little bit in his time. Maybe Kobe Bryant. Maybe Tiger. You know but those. That, but
1: that was more of a sort of. Competitive fire and using exactly. motivation—it it
0: wasn't at the extent. It wasn't at the extent of being um, derogatory towards someone else. It was more self-defense right, of right. I, I'm I'm stronger than that. I can do this. And and so I think most greats are able to find their way through that and use it when they do have that trait. They use it as a catalyst to help them excel versus. Defending themselves about stuff where it should go in one ear and out the other because it does all it does is use up emotional energy Um,
1: All right enough enough of Federer. I want to talk Paul Anacone I I was thinking (laughs) of you last week when this announcement came down Tony Romo Is going straight from uh, from one career to another and is now going to be The lead analyst for CBS for for football Um, No, but I, I was thinking in tennis. There really isn't people aren't necessarily eased into the job I mean, obviously, maybe you don't start out on the Wimbledon final, but it seemed as though you made this transition smoothly and also quite abruptly. It wasn't like you took two years to uh, go do regional college football games and take classes and talk to specialists. How did your how did, how'd you get into this TV gig? And well, also, how did you prepare?
0: Well, I did a little bit when I was younger, when I first stopped playing, and I did a little bit um, with David Mercer. And David, right? I did a little for BBC. Yeah, a l- little bit, and I did a little bit um, uh, of some radio. So I did a couple things, and I was always interested. And Mary will probably tell you. I remember sitting in the back of the booth, just watching her and Cliff a couple times do some commentary, and it interest interested me. Um, and the other thing too is that I got together with a group at Tennis Channel who are in an industry that I've been in my whole life. This is what we do. And and it's a great core group. And it's a great opportunity to continue to pursue what what I love, which is our sport. And in the magnitude of where we get to do it in the biggest arenas of the world, I mean, this is all... I mean, I love it. It's awesome. And so I I love the... idea of watching two players go to battle and maybe throwing sprinkling out some analysis about what's happening and why it's happening so people could get a clearer picture in their own mind so for me i get to do what i love with people that i really enjoy doing it with um and it's been fun I am, i'm really having a great time Spot, with isn't it. it? i love it i love
1: it what um what, what was the biggest... I mean, you know, I always feel like this TV talk is a fine line. Like, on the one hand, you don't want to diminish it. It's it's work. There are certainly skills, and they need improving. At the same time, I, all this, like, TVs, it, it's it's so hard. Like, no no one's breaking rocks here. No one's... I always say no one's working the blast furnace. Exactly. It's, it's, it's fine. You're talking tennis. Um. But what was the biggest adjustment for you? I mean, well, it, it's not just going in there and, and basically having the same conversation you had in the lounge with, with a camera and a red light. I mean, there are... Yeah, you have to
0: learn. I mean, for me, it's all, all the intricacies of TV that you know so well. And specifically as an analyst, you know, I have the propensity to be a little bit... Uh, too verbose I can kind of wander on too long I learned I need to learn to be and I still need to work on being concise getting to the point you know knowing when to talk when not to let the you know let the arena talk for you and and you know when to actually sprinkle some words on there that make sense so all that stuff you know you learn those intricacies but I'd love um, I, look Um, I'm a student of the game. I love to learn. Um, I I still, even when I wasn't doing TV, I still followed everything. I looked at statistics, who was doing what, when, where, and then I would put the why behind it with my coaching philosophy, what I thought, and so now I get to do that on TV. So I, I love watching players have to problem solve in the biggest stages of the world with no one there except themselves. Where else do you see that? You see it on a golf course, I guess, but they have their caddy. But these players are trying to problem-solve in the finals of Wimbledon, the finals of U.S. Open, and it's just them. That's it. That's amazing.
1: I don't I don't want to turn this into, uh, you know, shitting on on-court coaching, but uh, I, I, always, I always say, you, you know, my guilty pleasure is UFC. Mm-hmm. This is <laughs> cage fighting. These are the toughest guys in the world. And one out of every four minutes... These guys are getting instruction and they're getting pumped up and their confidence, and you're doing great. Tennis is more isolationist than cage fighting. It, it is. And I'm, I'm, I, you know,
0: in my early days, I actually was a proponent of on court coaching, and we tried oh, really? it on the oh, ATP yeah. tour years ago. I did it with Pete Sampras in Atlanta years ago. It might have been, I don't even know when it was, early 90s. And um, at that point, I thought it was a, a decent idea. Pete didn't like it. Um, But now, after seeing its progress, um, or arguably lack thereof, and what we've seen in the WTA tour, I I don't love it. I really don't. I I think that there's not a great way to do it that makes sense. Um, You know, you want want it to add to the TV story. I currently, very rarely does it do that for me. Um, I, I don't think coaches, and I've never felt like coaches, are the product. I think we have to figure out... How to help our players. My coaching philosophy is very simple. How little can I say to get them to do what they need to do? I was going to say, to never do. mind TV. That's where you want right. to be concise, right? Right. How little can I say to get them to do what they need to do? And how little can I say to get them to believe that they can do it with the most pressure on them? Those are the two themes, my themes coaching-wise. So I, I love the fact that there isn't a bailout, that you have to figure it out. And you can go. I can go through almost a match every single day when I watch a bunch of them where that doesn't happen. And the, that's the biggest reason that the player will hold themselves up is they don't learn to problem solve when adversity is right in front of them.
1: You ever heard the phrase uh it's a irrational confidence man? I, I think it's a Bill Simmons thing, but he said, you know, there's this guy, Joe, uh what's a good example? Jason Terry. You have these guys sure. who just they think every single shot they're taking is going in the basket. <laughs> um any we, we talk about sometimes the players that need more self belief and who kind of crumbles the are there are there players out there that you can preferably name that have this irrational confidence?
0: irrational i i i can tell you um i can tell you that most of the greats have rational confidence and what they, they they manifests itself in different ways for instance rafa rafa's is about repetition he needs the repetition to ultimately believe he can do it in the big moments right. roger is similar to sampras in that they both regardless of what happened they think when they get to the semis and finals, it's going to work. So that's the antithesis of that. I don't know. I really don't, I don't know.
1: Think it's a star. It's more you know, J.R. Smith. Yeah. Is just I'm chucking and <laughs> games on the line. I'm making the shot before LeBron is. Well,
0: you, yeah, you can look at you know people that have struggled to break into the upper echelon, and you can take a few of them out of there. You could look at even maybe a Bernard Tomic who's very talented, who actually thinks he can pull it off. But yet, in the big moments, tends not to. Right. Um, right. I think we're actually seeing kind of an evolution of Nick Kyrgios, where he used to be like that, irrational. Um, but, uh, you know, to say... That's ra- a good example. That's a good, but yeah, but that's Nick now, what we've seen the start of 2017, is he actually believes it in the big moments. And we saw a hiccup in Australia with kind of an emotional step back in his match against Seppi, but since then he showed us that he actually does believe. So he's starting to kind of get evolved through that, and he's starting to understand how to do it and to trust his skills. Um, and and on the women's side, I think Serena is great at it, and that's one of the reasons she's dominated. And, and I think the... Uh, there's a large portion of the other women that are near the top that have struggled a little bit. Angelique Kerber stepped up that last is, that year. That is not an irrational confidence
1: player. Yes, yeah, Angelique
0: Kerber stepped up last year, and she really was like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And she figured it out in 2016. 2017, no one's really grabbed it yet. We haven't seen anyone kind of go, I, I can do this. There's, and, and there's no magic pill. Everyone's personality and their dynamic to set it up is a little different.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I was saying, I think the Lindsay. I think part of it. Is I I don't mind the unpredictability, but you've got a 35 year old woman who won the first Slam, and who knows if and when we'll see her again. And otherwise, there are a lot of confounding results. Yeah, the there's a lot of lot of crazy stuff going on, and I, I've I've said
0: from the beginning, huge opportunity for all of the young women out there with Serena not playing as much to kind of step up. But this just shows us how hard it is to be great consistently because no one's been able to do it.
1: People say, oh, Serena's doing it in a time of, you know, in a a shaky time. And I said, "Look look at it the other way around. How good do you have to be to win 23 majors when we see other players win one and can't even, you know, don't don't win another title of any size.
0: Right, and we we saw Kerber do it pretty well last year. She did a pretty good job with it. Now, I think it's a very tough time. It's going to be interesting with Sharapova coming back. What what what's what are we going to see from her? What are we going to see? What in are terms we going of, to see from her? Well, I, I, you know she's if not the most professional, one of the top couple of. In terms of being professional, ticking the boxes on the women's tour. So I can't imagine she's not going to be extremely ready. And and judging by the results that are out there, she's got to believe that she's going to jump right back in and very quickly contend just because she worked so hard and because there hasn't been... Another dominant force lately other than Serena. And Serena has been her kryptonite, but everyone else, I think she feels like, I can do this. So I think I would expect her to be um, ex- you know, extremely high level very quickly.
1: She turns 30 this week, but uh, who knows what ages mean anymore, especially when you're coming off of uh, no competitive matches in 15 months. Maybe you get that time on the back end. So we're, we're heading to... Uh, I think Maria Maria turns 30 this week. uh, So we're heading into clay season. If you are advising Roger, do you tell him to shut it down, see you on the grass? Do you say it's weird not to at least show up in Paris, give it a shot, you've won this thing before? Do you say you're coming off this great 90 days, why stop your momentum Play all these events.
0: No, I, I mean, he's doing exactly what I would have suggested, which is don't play any of these initial clay court events. I would never tell a great player not to play a major event.
1: Chris Russo, mad dog, who is just here, is convinced that Federer is going to show up in at least one, uh I don't know where he's getting his information. If it's before a speculation, Paris? before Paris, nah, he's that convinced. would shock.
0: That would shock. Shocking, me. right? That would shock me. And and I think I'll be surprised if he doesn't play the French Open. That would surprise me. What, why is that? Just be, just because it's the French Open. That's what I'm. And 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 I think. Well, it's two look, hours I remember from Basel, when, like, what do you, what do you just? Yeah, and I, and I I think you know he's got enough he's doing a bunch of charity things now but he's got enough time where he can let his body rest and really have a great training block and he can go to he'll go to paris in great shape unless he's had injury and look yeah it's clay but the guy's 35 years old he's played plenty on clay it's not like he's going to forget how to play yeah, right. on clay like and, slide, right like, and you can argue he's been the most successful clay court player maybe ever other than rafa All
1: right I was gonna say yeah. Other um, than Rafa, right, right, uh, other right, than right. Rafa, if you look at his right.
0: record, he's had a tremendous clay court career, and and so there's no reason why he can't go there after a great training block and just be ready to go. I mean, let's let's you know he let's just remember what happened in Australia. He didn't play for six months, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And he played right.
0: an exhibition the week before where right. he lost to Zverev. And what else did he do? I don't even remember what he did. you think he won a couple? He beat Dan Evans. No, I
1: remember he played his way into the tournament. Right. He he played a match. Well, he played played No. Rubin and I think he gave up a set. And, yeah. Or,
0: or didn't, didn't
1: look particularly sharp.
0: Right. So so I guess my point is, I would never tell him not to play a major. Right. But I think it's yeah. smart.
1: Lunch. What? Um, who, so you think Rafa wins the French though?
0: Yeah, I think Rafa dominates the clay court season. I'll be shocked if he doesn't have at least 3 titles out of this clay court season including Roland Garros. So in
1: 2017 with one of the guys about to turn 36 and the other about to turn 31 uh we have Federer winning the first major of the year Nadal per Paul Anacone's suggestion winning the second and uh and these guys dominating the master series events as well. Uh who would have thought?
0: It's, ama- it's amazing. It's amazing. great I, story, right? It's a, I mean Look, you never, I always say, don't ever bet against great. You know, great players, they are not the rule. They're the exception. And they find ways to do things that we pundits like to sit around and talk about and say they should or shouldn't be able to do this. But I've been fooled many a time before, and great players don't bet against them. What's next for you? What's next for me? The clay court season. i got to get my clay court shoes
1: out and get ready to go. Should we mention your book, or should we cut that out and uh, do a podcast when you come back ready to publicize it?
0: Uh, we could do either. Tell I'm me more, about your book. I'm hoping that the book is going to be coming out um, French Open Wimbledon-ish. And oh, it, that's soon. Yeah. Oh, great. That's the goal. Title? Depending on how hard Jamie works at it. <laughs> Jamie Co- is the Allison <laughs> Rosen of this podcast. <laughs> the uh, book is titled Coaching for Life, and it's uh, – it really is using tennis as a metaphor for life, which is a coaching philosophy that I have inherited based on my experiences as a player and as a coach, and as a coaches that I've worked with. And why these great players that I've been so fortunate to have a front row seat watch have been so successful, other than their just immense skill sets, physical skill sets. What are the what are the um, common mechanisms that they use? To problem solve through adversity and to have confidence in times where doubt generally dominates.
1: But I've I've read uh, an advanced copy and it's also about coaching greatness too and sort of how do you tease out we all have this in us and most of us you know, how how do you tease out this these elite performances too right
0: exactly yeah it's like how do you look everyone's you know the biggest misconception people make is I want to be X everyone's goal needs to be, I want to be as good as I, I can be, be right. whatever that is. So you have to set up the processes to do that. Now, how do you do it? Well, that's what most of the book is about. And a lot of it is about how the players that I coached and how I did it as a player, what did Pete Sampras do to get through adversity? How did Roger sustain this for so long? What did I do when I played Tim Henman? What did he do? How did he get to be four in the world? And was that good? And Sloan Stevens, as a young woman who I was fortunate enough to coach when she was 21 years of age, what were her challenges and how did she deal with that? And so I think it does have to be coaxed out, but the only way to do it is to be able to hold up a mirror and understand yourself and figure out ways to maximize whatever that potential might be.
1: All right. We're going to gonna uh, we're gonna plug this book relentlessly when it comes out. Awesome. I put you on the spot there, but no, I think it's good to, uh, people can order this Online, yeah, we're, go gonna, to, uh... we're gonna
0: we're gonna start. We're gonna fi- we're figuring all that out now. All right. a lot of great people helping, but in the next couple of months, it's gonna be out there, and hopefully, you'll let me come back on here and chat about it. And who knows, we'll, we'll even get week. a plug on the tennis channel.
1: I know some people there. Um, <laughs> so do you? Awesome. Yep. All right, Paul and I are gonna go eat lunch. That does it for this week's podcast. Good conversation as always with Paul Anacone. We will keep you posted on his book, and we'll see if his prediction about uh, the clay court season comes to pass. That is a lot of dominance from Rafa Nadal. It doesn't sound like such a bold prediction, but uh, again, we have in a much different place in men's tennis than we were and we started the year. Uh, anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to our esteemed producer, as always, Jamie Lasanti. We will have another guest. I am headed to Cuba for a, um, a, a project that involves tennis and tennis channel that I'm sure... Uh, We'll hear more about, but we'll have another guest next week. I'm John Wertheim. That's Paul Anacone. She's Jamie Lasanti. We'll do it again next week. Have a good week.